uh, began it last week. And uh, if you weren't here with us last week, you are very much invited to go and to listen or to watch online as uh, this is one of those series where each week kind of uh, builds on the other one. And so being uh, or having the chance to watch last week would be a blessing to you. If you haven't taken out your uh, sermon notes yet, I would encourage you to, to do so. If you're watching or listening online, there should be a notes tab that if you click on it, that you'll be able to print uh, or use that PDF um, online. So for those of you who weren't here uh, last week, and even for those who were, I just want to give you a a quick summary of the premise of the series. We're not going to get into the content of last week, but the premise of the whole series. So last week we talked about how all of us have a starting point of faith. All of us have a starting point of an understanding of who God is and what he's like. And usually that childhood understanding is something like this. God is good. God is love. Um, God hears prayers. God likes good things, doesn't like bad things, you know, that type of stuff. But what I found and what I received feedback from last week sort of validate that that for almost all of us, there's a certain point in our life, sometimes that's high school, sometimes that's college, sometimes it's earlier or later, where our childhood understanding of God bumps up against the reality and complexity of life. And when that happens, when that bumping up happens, oftentimes we begin to doubt. Oftentimes, when the complexity of life bumps up against our childhood framework of God, that it begins to chip away a little bit on what, at what we believe and, and how we think about God. And what we're doing in this series is we're not like just ignoring that and pretending like that doesn't happen, because I know it does, and I know it's happened for some of you. We're acknowledging that this happens, and the first thing I want to say is to have those types of questions doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It means that you think, and that's a good attribute to have. Thinking is always good, okay? It means that you think if you have questions and if you have some doubts. But instead of ignoring it, here's what we're doing. We're clearing all the bananagrams off the table. And if you weren't here last week, it doesn't make any sense. You'll have to listen or watch so that you know what I'm talking about. We're clearing the bananagrams off the table, and what we're doing is we're going back to the starting point of faith. That is, if we were going to start over when it comes to faith and thinking about God, what would that look like, and where would we begin? So we're in part two of that. A few years ago, I had a chance to um, talk with a good friend, someone I had known for a couple years at the time, about God and about faith. And he had been in Bethlehem for a while, but he would not call himself a Christian. And in fact, that was part of the reason why we got together, because he had questions about God and he had questions about what was right and what was wrong when it came to God. And so one of the very first questions that he asked, and maybe before I give you that question, I need to give you a little bit of his background. He had grown up from his birth in the United States, but his parents were born and raised in China. And in fact, as far as I know, it was only his parents and his entire family that moved to the United States. The rest of his family still lived in China. And so when we got together, here was his question. His question was, as I think about God, What makes your American Christian view of God right 
And what makes my family's Chinese Buddhist view of God wrong? It's a very good question, isn't it? Now, how would you answer that? See, you guys would just love to be a pastor, right? Because you're given these great questions that you're supposed to have the answers to. Um, here's, Here's what I did. He was in my office, and I pointed to my seminary diploma, and then I looked at him kind of with a glare and said, because I said so, you know. No, that's not, there should have been some nervous laughter at that point because that's not at all what I did. That would be a horrible thing to do because I said so or even because God said so. Can you see the circular reasoning to that? This is a tough question. What would you do if someone asked you about how do you know this God is right and that God view of God is wrong? Now, some of you don't have to even think about a conversation with someone because all you have to do is refer to the conversation in your head (laughs) because you've had those questions. Because there are so many different ideas about God and about spirituality that constantly bombard us at our workplace, in our neighborhoods, on the internet, at school, in college, all different places, and they're constantly telling us different things. There's differing ideas about who God is, what he's like. There's differing ideas about how do you get into God's good graces. There's differing ideas about what happens to you when you die. There's different ideas about whether there's a God at all. It's tough. What did I do? Well, what I shared with my friend that day a few years ago is exactly what I want to do with you for a little bit to stimulate your heart and your mind and possibly your soul when it comes to figuring out God a little bit more, if you've had questions. What I told my friend is, could we spend some time right now, and as long as it takes, maybe it's weeks, maybe it's months, can we spend our time just focusing in on one thing? Who was Jesus? You have lots of questions. There's lots of different things out there. But for our purposes and where you're at, wondering about different views of God, let's just spend some time focusing in on one thing, on who is Jesus. And that's our first fill-in-the-blank for this week. A great starting point of faith, a great starting point of understanding God. This isn't the only way to go about it. I personally think this is the best way, but a great starting point of faith is to spend some time focusing on who Jesus was and who Jesus is. So, here's something you may not know about Jesus. Did you know that very few historians... Biblical, but even more so also thinking secular, historians, very few deny the fact that there is a man named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. It is almost universally accepted that Jesus lived on this earth in Israel 2,000 years ago. And if you were to, to Google something along those lines, you will find some articles that come from people that would deny that he ever existed but what you'll quickly find, because I've read a number of them, that very, very quickly, their lack of objectivity quickly comes out. They're not viewing this from an objective perspective. 
They've come into the, the conclusion with an answer that they wanted to believe. And, and here's a little bit of, of why historians can be so confident that there was a Jesus. Because there were secular historians who did not believe that Jesus was God, but validated that Jesus lived. And these historians lived at the time of Jesus and a little while afterwards. One of them, because I couldn't, you know, we didn't have time to go through all of them, but one of them I'd like to point you to just to give you a little flavor is a Roman historian named Tacitus. And he is very well known for his histories because they were so precise. He was a very well-respected historian at the time of the Roman Empire. And Tacitus writes about Nero the emperor, and he also then references Jesus. I, I wanted to share a few of those words from a, uh, a book that he wrote that today is called Annals, is basically what it's called. So Tacitus writes, Consequently, to get rid of the report, and so you got to kind of have some context, Tacitus is writing about the burning of Rome back in the first century. And he's writing about how um, there was this report that Nero the emperor, he was kind of a crazy dude, um, Nero the emperor set Rome on fire himself. And so to get rid of that report, Tacitus, the secular historian who did not believe in Jesus as Savior or God, fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, according to to Roman leaders. This group called Christians by the people or by the populace. So we have Tacitus who lived in the late first century, early second century, who validates Christians, and that's not all. Next, Christ, Jesus, from whom the name Christian had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty the idea that Jesus died on a cross and was crucified is not just something you have to believe by faith, that he died on a cross. It is validated by secular historians. Right here, here's one. The extreme penalty, crucifixion. During the reign of Tiberius, he mentions who the emperor was at the time, at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, too. Someone mentioned in the Bible mentioned also by a man, a secular historian who had no agenda, but just is clearly writing about history. And his account of history, as, at least as written here, is clearly in line with what the Bible says. There is no doubt that a man named Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. Here's another question, though. How in all the world do we know about Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years later? And here's what I mean by that. From every historical perspective, the way that historians view things, Jesus' background and Jesus' earthly stature would give no reason for culture to still be remembering him 2,000 years ago. Here's what I mean. Jesus lived in what was considered the armpit of the Roman Empire. So basically what that means is you would not want to live in your armpit and you would not want to live in Israel if you were part of Rome, okay? It, no one wanted to live there. He was from a poor town, born to poor parents. 
He grew up as a uh, nondescript carpenter, which, you know, great way to make a living, but it's not going to get you famous. He didn't lead an army. He didn't even write a book of any sort. And yet 2,000 years later, we know about him. 2,000 years later, one-third of the world's population professes that they worship him as God. How does that happen? How does that happen? The account that I want to look at this morning gives us a little bit of clue into how that happened. And not only how that happened, that we still know about Jesus 2,000 years later, but what was the most important thing about Jesus? And what is the most important thing to consider when you're considering the Christian view of God? So where we're going to turn is another historian from the time of Christ. His name was Luke. Now, I am going to tell you that I believe that God had something to do, that God was with Luke when he wrote this history. But at the same time, those who don't believe in the inspiration of the Bible would still admit that Luke was a pretty solid historian. In fact, in the very beginning of his gospel where he wrote about Jesus' life, he writes about his process. He does not write that he slept one day, God gave him a vision and a dream about what to write, and then he woke up and wrote something, like some holy books uh, profess. He writes that he went about talking to people who were friends with Jesus, who talked with Jesus, and gathering all that information he wrote down, as he says, an orderly account of history. So he wrote one about Jesus' life, and then part two of his history was about what happened to the church after Jesus died. It's called Acts. It's found in the Bible, but it's just a letter that's bound together with a whole bunch of other ancient writings that we call the Bible. And what we're going to look at is an event that happened a few weeks after Jesus died. So here's a little bit of the background. Two of Jesus' really good friends, uh, Peter and John, were in the city of Jerusalem. Just a few weeks before they were there, a little bit of context, Jesus had been crucified in that same town. So Peter and John are coming back, and uh, Luke writes about how there was a well-known beggar who would hang out at the city gates. And not only was he a beggar, but he was crippled. And so what it sounds like is that every day, um, uh, some friends or family would pick him up, carrying him to the city gate. He would beg. That's how people were taken care of at that time, uh, culturally. Then at night, they'd pick him up and take him home, and they had been doing this with him for years. So what happened is a lot of people knew him. They recognized him. They knew him. They knew his name. Some had given you know, money to him, I'm sure. Some had ignored him all the time, whatever, okay? But they, the people in Jerusalem, knew who he was. Well, as Peter and John walk in to Jerusalem that day, they see this beggar, this crippled beggar, and they give him their attention. And then with God's power and help, they actually heal him, and he's able to jump up, walk around, and no longer be crippled. 
Well, again, I told you that everybody in town would have recognized this guy, and now all of a sudden, the guy that everyone knows who can't walk is walking, and people have lots of questions about what's going on and what happened to him. And they track down the cripple, and he's with Peter and John. That's where we're going to pick up the, the words in verse 11 of Acts 3. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, you know, he's, he's just been healed. He's so happy. He's like giving Peter and John bro hugs or something like that. All the people were astonished, and they came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Can I do just a little bit of an aside here? When, when people are, watch, are writing fairy tales, they give a storyline, but they don't give, like, exquisite detail. So I want you to recognize Luke's writing of Acts and Luke is not like any sort of made-up, fictitious book. The historian Luke gives us tremendous details. Here's one example of it, that, that not only did the people come to Peter, John, and the, the crippled, now-healed person, but that exactly where they were, a place called Solomon's Colonnade in Jerusalem. Verse 12, that was an aside. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men, people of Israel, why does this healing surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Because it wasn't. It wasn't our power. It wasn't us that did this thing. It was the God of Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, and that God has glorified his servant Jesus. So what Peter is doing here is he is, first of all, connecting Jesus to the God of the Old Testament. He's saying following Jesus is not different than following the God of the Old Testament. It's the exact same thing, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. They're together. They're a package deal, okay? And then, as Peter and John want to explain a little bit more about Jesus, because it's kind of an abbreviated sermon, much shorter than my sermons, okay, um, they're going to get right to the point of who Jesus is. And, and before we look at the words, I want to just acknowledge that Peter and John could have gone in a lot of different ways when it comes to explaining the crux of Jesus, so let me give you some examples. They could have said they glorified his servant Jesus who taught us this brand new prayer that goes, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so on and so forth. Or they could have said this, this Jesus who was a great preacher and thousands would flock to him to listen to him because, you know, he could really sort of work a crowd or they could have said, this Jesus who had some really, I guess, revolutionary teachings, and he did, like um, love not just the people in your family, but love your enemies as yourself. Or some revolutionary teachings like, you know what, men and women, they have equal status before God because they lived in a culture where women were considered more possessions than people. And Jesus said, no, that's not right. We're the same. Masters and slaves, equal status before God. But Peter and John, when they had a chance to get to the crux of, of who Jesus is, that's the question we're considering. Who's Jesus? They didn't say any of that stuff. What did they say? Who 
you handed over to be killed. Now, that's a, that's a way to start a sermon, isn't it? I mean, um, I was taught that you kind of are supposed to help people, you know, get people to like you as you talk to them. You know, Peter didn't go to the same sermon preaching class that I did, I guess. But um, you handed him over to be killed. You disowned this Jesus before Pilate, though he decided to let him go. And you know what the people in the crowd are doing? Because it was only three weeks before. They're like, yeah, that's true. Yeah, we did disown him before Pilate. Um, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. And the people in the crowd only three weeks later are thinking, yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. That's true. In fact, I was one of the guys that yelled, crucify him, crucify him, when Pilate asked if, if we should crucify Barabbas or we should crucify Jesus. This is, this is a historical account about an, an event that happened only three or four weeks after Jesus died. You killed the author of life. You killed the author of life. And as the, the people are listening, only a couple hundred yards away is the mountain or the hill on which that very thing happened. This is a historical account. And Luke is writing to people as Peter is preaching, or about people as Peter is preaching, who experienced these things, who would have been there when it happened. And then Peter says this, but God raised him from the dead. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And when Peter had an opportunity to get to the crux, the main event of the Christian faith, he doesn't talk about Jesus' teachings and what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do and revolutionary things that Jesus said. He here, and we see it throughout Luke's account, that the early Christians always go back to an event, not teachings to an event, a something that Jesus did, not what Jesus taught. Now, the teachings of Jesus are important. Don't get me wrong. We shouldn't just dismiss the teachings of Jesus, but that's not the heart of the Christian faith. That's not the thing that I'm asking you to wrestle with today. What I want you to wrestle with today is an event, not a teaching. Our next fill-in is this. Christianity is not based on rules to follow. Now, are there rules or directions in Christianity? Absolutely there is. That's not, the point is that's not the heart of it. That's not what our, our hope is based on. But instead, Christianity is based on an event that happened. And an event that happened. You see, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. Maybe you have. But the Christian view of God is different from every other view of God that is out there. Every other view of God essentially boils down to this, that the way we get into relationship with God or the way we're saved or the way that we get God to love us is by following rules. 
rules to follow. So let me give you some examples. So in the Muslim faith, if you want to have a good relationship with God, then you need to follow the five pillars of the faith, do them very, very faithfully, and then at the end of your life, there's a chance, a good chance, but a chance that you might be with God forever. In the Buddhist faith, um, what you're asked to do is to follow the tenets of the Buddha or of the higher power. And when you follow those tenets, um, you might be able to experience the nirvana that God would like you to have. Um, how about uh, a Jehovah's Witness? They definitely teach about Jesus, and they even teach that Jesus died. But it is not only that event by which we are saved, but instead, you need to follow this or these rules. And if you're good enough, you might be one of the 144,000 pretty exclusive club that will be able to spend eternity um, with God in, in, in the right place. It's only the Christian view of God that takes the way that we get with, in God's good graces, out of our hands and puts it on an event. And that event being the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In Christianity, the Christian view of God is that when Jesus died, and rose again, his victory over sin and death becomes our victory over sin and death when we put our faith and trust in him. Now, here's what else I'm going to acknowledge. You've never seen someone die and self-resurrect, okay? So the event that a Christian puts their faith into is something that we've never seen before. It doesn't happen very often. Can I give you a little bit of encouragement this morning? <laughs> the disciples had never seen this happen before either. And so guess where they were not on the days after Jesus died, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning. You know where they were not? They were not outside the tomb in tents with a campfire waiting for the tomb to open up and Jesus to be risen from the dead. They had never seen this happen before. They probably thought in some ways that this was outlandish as well. It wasn't really on their radar. You know where they were? They were huddled up in a room together with the doors locked, because, not because they were happy and looking forward to what was going to happen, but because they were scared of what might happen. The Jewish authorities, the Roman leaders, put Jesus to death. Everyone knows we follow him. What's going to happen to us next? Are they going to come after us? They were fear, filled with fear at first, not confidence. They were fear, filled with fear, not hope. But then trans, uh, go forward three weeks. And Peter starts out his sermon, how? Not pulling any punches. You killed Jesus in a very confident and in-your-face way. What changed in three weeks that these fraidy cats 
would become so bold. Peter tells us, back to Luke's account. (laughs) Here's that in your face. You killed the author of life, you Jewish people. But God raised him from the dead. (laughs) And then here's how it ends. And we're witnesses of this. Yeah, we've seen Jesus risen from the dead. We've touched him. We've held on to him. We've hugged him. (laughs) And in fact, if you look through the book of Acts, um, I don't think I have all of the examples up here because the font would be even smaller, but I have a whole bunch of examples for you about how this witness part was always a part of the early Christian church's message. You killed the author of life, God raised him, we're witnesses. That's the one we looked at. God has raised Jesus to life. <laughs> we're all witnesses of the fact. They use the word fact. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead. We're witnesses. Witnesses, 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 witnesses. Part of the message of the early Christians as they were trying to tell people the crux of the Christian faith was that Jesus died and he rose and then we saw him. We saw him. Now, some would like to propose, secular historians, that the reason why Luke and John and Mark and so on and so forth write that Jesus rose from the dead is because, well, They had given their lives to follow Jesus. They had given up their jobs. They had given up their families. They traveled from Galilee to follow Jesus around for three years. And some would propose that they made this up to save face because they didn't want to look like crazy dudes who followed some guy for three years and now he's dead. Now, let's just say that that could be true. Someone might have a motive like that. That's all fine and good. Until someone starts to threaten you and to say, unless you stop preaching that, we're going to kill you. If I had made up a story to save face, I might stick on to that until the point of which spikes are going through my own hands and feet. As many Christians, including many of the original 12 disciples, were crucified themselves for their faith because they would not stop talking about a risen Lord. The idea that this was made up makes no sense at all. That what Luke clearly writes, that Jesus rose from the dead, is the most plausible explanation for a lot of things. It is the reason why you know about a Jewish carpenter from the armpit of the Roman Empire 2,000 years later. The reason is because Jesus died and then he rose from the dead. There's lots of people who were crucified by Rome. How many of them do you know? The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is the reason why the church endured. Think about this. The first century, A.D., there was, the Christians endured one of the worst persecutions there's ever been of any type of of nationality and or religious creed. 
And yet the church in that time not only survived, it grew. Because it was filled with people who saw Jesus had risen from the dead. Didn't just believe it. They saw it. Our last fill in the blank for today. Jesus' resurrection is the main event of the Christian faith. It's not the only thing of the Christian faith in the sense of growing in our understanding of God and everything. I'm saying it's the starting point. It's the main thing. It's the main thing in all the ways I already described. It's also the main thing in one other way. It's your confidence about the future. One of the things that people fear the most, maybe some of you don't have that, that problem or issue, but one of the things people fear the most is death. When you consider a loved one who has passed away that you really, really miss, the resurrection is the main event because through the resurrection, your loved ones who have died in faith, you can have every confidence that they're going to rise again someday and you're going to see them. Someday, when you are nearing death yourself, when I'm nearing death, the greatest thing your heart can focus on is not what family members are going to be there to say their goodbyes. The greatest thing you can center your heart on is Jesus' resurrection. It is that event and his power over death that is our proof that we someday will live too and gives us so much joy and so much confidence for eternity. So as we close, here's the question that I want you to wrestle with today. Did Jesus rise from the dead? We're making things really simplistic. We're putting just a few bananagrams on the table. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Because if he didn't, well, then we might as well close the church. And you don't have to get up in negative degree weather on a Sunday morning. You can just stay home and, you know, be on time for kickoff, okay? But if Jesus did rise from the dead, well, then you have every confidence about your view of God through Christian eyes. It does not take away all of our questions about God. We're going to look at more of those throughout the next number of weeks. But it gives you every confidence to trust the God of the Bible and his son, Jesus, because Jesus rose from the dead. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this time um, to consider both from um, biblical historians and even a little bit from secular history, from history, um, the evidence of Jesus, your Son, and also that which we believe by faith and which uh, many hundreds and thousands saw Jesus having risen from the dead. So, dear Lord, as we uh, go from this place, it asks that you would strengthen our confidence in, in your son Jesus, and also as we contemplate um, our own mortality and, and loved ones gone before us, this uh, study of the resurrection 
may it also strengthen our peace, our hope, our joy when it comes to eternity. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, our ushers...